recorded live from Hong Kong and Toronto. Let's go. This is the PR and Law Podcast. The PR and Law Podcast. Turn it up, turn it up. With your hosts, Cam McMurchy and you and Christy. Welcome to episode number 14 of the PR and Law Podcast. I'm your host, Cam McMurchy, alongside you and Christy. Hello, Cameron. Ewan is an employment lawyer and partner at Duntroon LLP in Toronto, Canada, and you can find his firm online at duntroonllp.law. I'm a PR guy based in Hong Kong and publisher of the Digital Bits PR and Communications newsletter. And if you want to sign up for that, you can do so at digitalbitspr.com. So if you enjoy the podcast, please tell a friend. It's a great way to get the word out there. It helps us out a lot, and we really appreciate that. Uh, You can also follow us on social media. We're on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and you can find us with the account name PR Law Podcast, all one word across all of those networks. Uh, And we're also on YouTube as well, so you can subscribe to our YouTube channel and get the new episodes that way. Um, We're also on Patreon, so if you would like to to help us out, it it really does help us out quite a bit. Uh, and you can get to Patreon, Patreon through our website at prlawpodcast.com and click support the show. Lastly, we'll take your questions as well uh, in an upcoming segment uh, fairly soon. And uh, if you have a question for you and or myself, uh, you can post it on social media with the hashtag prlawpod, P-R-L-A-W-P-O-D. We have a ton of stuff set to uh, go over today. You and how are you doing? I'm all right, Cameron. I'm all right. I'm, uh, you know, I'm a little, uh, a little sheepish with the the latest financial news that's come out about Canada and our, uh, our, our projections going forward. Our debt has absolutely ballooned here. Um, so how bad is it? Emergency measures. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty bad. Uh, Canada's budget deficit is forecast to hit 343.2 billion wow. uh, which to put in, in in perspective that's the largest shortfall we've seen since world war ii wow so you know that's a um, lot for canada yeah it's 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 pretty big uh you know and for those uh economist nerds out there that might be listening that will understand the significance of this uh our federal debt to gdp ratio is expected to rise from 31 percent to 49 percent uh which is just crazy it's just crazy yeah and you know you and i were talking a little bit off the air just about the impacts of of covid because that's i mean the main reason right you and why 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 the debt has ballooned it's because there's a lot of sort of help being given to to families who are struggling through through the pandemic right yeah and you know if in most circles anyway obviously there's always going to be that segment of the population that's critical of the measures that have been taken by the government but in most circles um the you know the the government has been seen to have done a pretty good job in sort of stepping up and providing emergency measures to to keep people afloat right all those people that have lost their jobs have been in many cases getting you know upwards of two thousand dollars a month from from the government uh, through the Canadian Emergency Response Benefit, you know. So, look, I mean, what what are you going to do, right? I mean, it's sort of a coin toss. Either you, you let these people lose their jobs and effectively lose their homes or not be able to pay their rent, or on the flip side, you watch your your debt completely balloon, your deficit balloon. So, you know, Canada sort of chose to to keep people afloat and and carry that debt burden itself. And, um, you know, other countries have chosen another path, other paths, but <laughs> I think countries you know, that shall not be named. Well, well, yeah. And look, are, are we going to be paying for this for, I mean, effectively generations? I don't know how we're going to pay for it, Cam. But, you know, if, if the alternative was effectively to let people, working class people lose their homes um, through this, then I, you know, I like to think that our government made the right call. Well, this week was a bit of an eye opener, I think, with uh, with COVID, because um, I mean, Hong Kong has been doing everything right, and I, and you know, if you've listened to the show uh, a few times, I mean, you'll know that I, I've often talked about how we have no cases; we can go weeks without uh, any any local locally transmitted cases. Uh, but that really changed in a huge way last week, uh, even today. So we're recording this on a Sunday. We had fifty eight new cases in Hong Kong. Thirteen of those have not been traced yet, and there were sixty one cases 
yesterday. And so we're approaching uh, 1,500 cases overall. But I mean, we've been at 1,100 cases for weeks. So in the last several days, we've basically added 350 to 400 cases. And this is much worse than we've ever had in Hong Kong. Even going back to January, uh, people here have been doing the right thing. And we've talked about that as well. They're wearing masks. People are distancing as much as they can uh, for such a crowded city. And everything's been been really well organized and well run. And yet here is another big outbreak. And it looks like there's several of them around the city. And, and you know, they're not even sure where they came from or, or why. Uh, and this really is a challenge because it means, you know, other countries that are maybe not, um, you know, uh, uh, vigilant to the same degree could, could end up in a similar situation. So when you talk about the Canadian government debt, I mean, it seems like a short-term thing. Like there's there's a, a, a catastrophic disaster, sort of compared to like a hurricane or a, you know so, something like that or a snowstorm uh, that's going to require some government funds to 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 get out of it. But this this could go on the rest of the year and it could go into next year and who knows? I mean, it might carry on until there is a vaccine. And even if we had a vaccine today, people think it would take a year before it would be worldwide and there'd be enough of it to to really to really uh, vaccinate everyone. Yeah, it's really disconcerting to hear what's going on in Hong Kong because that just again suggests that we're going to be experiencing that ripple effect a couple months down the road. You know, we, we thought that for the most part you guys were out of the woods and it looked like you you were. But to your point, yeah, I mean, the, this isn't going away anytime soon, right? Yeah, and another scary thing that came out here is uh, at the Hong Kong University Medical School, they talked about how actually COVID, there is a strain of it that has evolved um, and it's increased the infection, uh, likelihood of infection by about 30%. Uh, due to a mutation, so it looks like even the even the virus itself is is getting stronger. Um, I, I mentioned the vaccine. I, I did want to mention this one thing uh, because this I found quite interesting. We've been talking about Vietnam uh, a few times about how the fact they've had zero deaths there. Uh, we mentioned that on last week's show uh, and discussed that a bit. Uh, but Thailand uh, has has actually made a vaccine. Uh, they have created one, and it will be tested. Uh, it will be tested. They're, they're testing it on animals in the sort of immediate term, but they intend to do uh, 10,000 doses in November of actual people. So the first group will be aged 18 to 60. Uh, and th- those, um, those vaccines are going to be done in San Diego and Vancouver. Kind of surprised me Vancouver was on there. Um, but but that's, a, that's a, you know, a positive development. But again, Thailand has even said this is for the Thai people. <laughs> this is they're going to look after their their own first, and this is why I think people expecting a vaccine and just kind of holding out and thinking it's going to come soon are mistaken. It, it's going to be quite a while uh, before a vaccine is going to be so widespread that uh, it'll be available for everyone. And the last thing on this, Thailand also just thirty two hundred cases overall and fifty eight deaths. And you and you and I've been to Thailand uh, together a couple times. Even it's also a hot, sticky, crowded, <laughs> crazy place. Uh, but even it there, sure it is. looks like they've done a done a good job. Well, that's good. Hey, that's great. That's in. That, it's always encouraging to hear these sort of happier stories. I like that. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay, we we um, have quite a bit to to go over today. Ewan's got some uh, some excellent legal material. I think he's going to update us on a couple of uh, issues that he's brought up recently. And then later on in the show, uh, I am going to dive into the wonderful world of TikTok. So we'll get to that on the other side. Continue the debate with us on social media. Join us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at PR Law Podcast. All one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Send us your questions now by email to askusatprlawpodcast.com. That's all one word, askusatprlawpodcast.com. Or on social media with the hashtag PRLawPod. That's hashtag P-R-L-A-W-P-O-D. I wanted to go back to episode 11 where we were talking about, if you recall, Cam, the U.S. Supreme Court decision that was outlawing discrimination in the workplace on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. So right. this was the, the case where they were exploring the, the definition of, of gender and whether or not, um, or of sex rather, excuse me, and whether or not it was broad enough to encompass sexual orientation and gender identity ultimately the court determined that yes it was so again Uh, just to be talked about yeah just to be clear so that means that ruling means that um you cannot discriminate um 
on the basis of their sexual orientation. Is that is that fair to say? Correct. Yes, that's exactly what it means. And that includes transgender. Discriminate against employees on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity. Okay, so transgender people are also protected for gender identity. That would be right. That would that would be covered under gender identity. Yes. Gotcha. Okay. Carry on. And we 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 talked about how you know this was not going to be the last word on on this issue, um, and that there was probably going to be subsequent cases to follow that would distinguish this law or clarify it in some way and it didn't take long because earlier this week the u.s supreme court in a in a 7-2 ruling um it was sort of looked at two cases which it consolidated this is morrissey baru um v our lady of guadalupe guadalupe and the court held that religious schools don't have to follow anti-discrimination laws so they're creating a, a bit of a distinction from the from the prior case. So to give you just a, a little bit of a factual context, so Agnes Morrissey Barry, she was a, a sixth grade substitute teacher who brought an age discrimination case, and Kristen Beale was a, a fifth grade teacher who claimed to have been discriminated under the Americans with Disabilities Act. Uh, in both of these cases, the Catholic school defendants they argued that as a matter of Supreme court precedent that went back to 2012, that religious institutions have the freedom to determine who will hold positions as religious leaders. And that those individuals who, who may object to that discretion cannot make the argument that the reason that they weren't hired or that the reason that they were hired was discriminatory. Does that make sense, Cam? I, I have uh, just looked this up quickly. Indeed, yeah, she had breast cancer, and uh, and she, she asked for time off in order for treatment. And when her contract ended, they did not renew her contract, which obviously was was devastating for her. And they felt like, you know, if 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 she's going to be off the job or in treatment uh, or going through this, that that um, they were just not gonna gonna renew her contract is definitely very cold-hearted. I mean, we talk about PR on this show. This isn't good PR for the church at all. If you've got somebody who is, you know, pretty much literally on their deathbed uh, and just asking for time off for for, for medical reasons. Um, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't look good. And it's interesting because you would think like with a with a church that this would be on some kind of religious grounds. But it's more. It looks like it's more that the the church, at, because it, it it can discriminate for the reasons that you outlined earlier, uh, they decided to discriminate in terms of health um, or time off, which is not directly related to to the religion, but it's still in their sort of privileged position. Uh, it looks like yeah, they were able to do that. Does that sound right? Well. Well, yeah, but I, th- I think the bigger picture, Cam, is we've got to look at the significance of judicial precedent, right? And the, the problem for the church here is it could establish a dangerous precedent that if you're saying you can't discriminate on, on the basis of disability, well, then does that mean you can't discriminate on, on any basis as mm-hmm. a religious institution or as a religious school? So it's not so much that, you know, the, the church is outright against supporting um, employees who may be dying of cancer, but rather that if they were to permit permit um, that particular ground of discrimination to, to effectively hold that, no, no, we can't discriminate on this specific basis, it then sets that dangerous precedent, right? And that's that's sort of the issue, and I suspect that that's the reason that um, that the Catholic schools had, had challenged and, and continued to, to go with the case all the way to the Supreme court. Yeah. It feels like you know, the church does have sort of special dispensation, um, on religious grounds and they've abused that, um, sort of extra right in another area, um, where maybe it wasn't as, um, it wasn't as well protected, but well, I think, again, I think it sort of specifically ensures that they are protected in another context. So, you know, we, when we talked about earlier that, that definition of sex to include sexual orientation and gender identity, um, you know, I think it's probably important for some religious institutions to, for them to discriminate and continue to discriminate on that basis. Um, and if this case was to effectively go the other way, I suspect there would probably be a flood of other cases challenging 
the discriminatory conduct of religious institutions on all sorts of basis points. Um, so again, it would set it from, and I, when I say dangerous precedent, obviously I mean specifically from the perspective of a religious institution. I think mm-hmm. obviously from, um, from, the, from the public at large, they may feel very, very differently about that, but that's not necessarily how the judiciary works, particularly in the United States where, you know, um, most of the Supreme Court relies on that textualist approach that we've talked about where effectively they rely on the law at the time it was written and they're not supposed to, you know, incorporate or read in um, contemporary social context. That's not the role of, of the Supreme Court, or at least that's how a number of Supreme Court justices continue continue to see it. I did want to ask a, a couple of quick questions on this. Um, first, so I, I mean, this is a case in the U.S., but what what's the situation in Canada? I mean, how do religious organizations operate, and can they discriminate in Canada on religious grounds? Um, well, you know, yeah, that's that that's a complicated question. Again, it would really have to sort of be determined on a case by case basis. I mean, generally speaking, you cannot discriminate on any of the protective grounds that you would see under, you know, the Ontario Human Rights Code or specific human rights legislation in the provinces, or if it's a federally regulated industry, then, um, you know, federal human rights code legislation. Um, but of course, you know, it, you're, you have to balance that again. It's always a balancing act in, in, in legal scenarios, right? And of course, freedom of religion is a protected ground other, under the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So, you know, someone could make a case if they felt they were being discriminated against on that basis. And then ultimately, we would go to that sort of section one of the charter, which is, you know, the, this reasonable limits clause that I had, had, had mentioned earlier on, whereby we can say, okay, you know, arguably someone's freedom of religion or any of the protected grounds under the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms was ultimately violated, but it's a reasonable violation in a free and democratic society. So much of this is sort of evaluated on a case-by-case basis. Um, You know, generally speaking, employers shouldn't be discriminating on any basis and, you know, could find themselves in, in, in hot water for doing so, be it for, you know, religious grounds or or uh, a protected disability, race, gender, uh, sexual orientation, et cetera. Really, it's not, it's not, it's just not something that employers want to dip their toes into at the, in the best of times. Okay. One other quick question on this. Uh, it's not directly related to this, but I mean, in cases where there are, there really is discrimination, like in terms of, you know, television shows or movies that, that need a certain character, or a certain look, what is the exception that allows them to do that? Because I assume there must be something. Actually, more than just acting jobs, too. There are other jobs where you do need to be, you know, if you're a firefighter, for instance, you've got to be able to, you know, carry carry heavy loads. So how does that work? Well, you know, again, this depends sort of on on the jurisdiction that you're in. But, um, you know, if you are ever, for example, prevented from, you know, if you're a job candidate for a particular position or, you know, an acting role, for example, um, you would have to be able to demonstrate that the decision of the employer not to specifically hire you was based upon uh, I see. a protected discriminatory ground under human rights code legislation. Mm-hmm. You would have to be able to demonstrate that. And obviously that's a very, very difficult thing to do, particularly during a job interview, for example, if you're meeting with a prospective employer um, and you happen to be, you know, a, a black woman or a gay man or someone with some particular physical disability that's recognizable at face value. Um, how do you ultimately prove after the fact that that was the basis upon which they didn't give you the job? I mean, suffice it to say, it's a very, very difficult um, threshold to meet. Mm-hmm. So can you take that, make, make that argument? Absolutely. Do employees and prospective employees do it all the time? Absolutely. Um, but it's certainly, it's certainly difficult. And that's, again, one of the, one of the huge problems with sort of systemic racism and discrimination in, in frankly, any culture is that so much of it is adverse. It's not readily discernible at face value. And what I mean when I say that is it's often very, very difficult to say, well, this person discriminated against me because of fill in the blank at face value. So how do we sort of prove and demonstrate that that was the basis of, of 
of the decision. It's a, it's a really, really difficult thing to do, Cam. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. And there was one other thing I think I wanted to talk about as well. Yeah. I wanted to sort of dip our toes back into something. And this was something we talked about in, in episode 12, Cam, when we, we were talking about David Heller and Uber. So that was that, that case here in Canada at the Supreme court where David Heller was um, effectively trying to bring a class action against Uber to argue that he was an employee and not an independent contractor and then Uber turned around and said, well, hey, wait a minute, but we've got this arbitration clause in, in, in our agreement that says that if you want to, if you want to dispute the relationship, um, our relationship in any way, shape or form, then, you know, you've got to travel, I think it was to the Netherlands at a, at a cost of, <laughs> and a, yeah, an, an exorbitant cost to you in terms of administrative and filing fees, plus obviously the time the worker would have to take off any legal uh, support he may require in terms of counsel, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, lost wages along the way. And, you know, David Heller was a guy who was making about $30,000 a year driving for Uber. So the court ultimately held that, you know, the arbitration clause was unconscionable and should be struck. Well, interestingly, since then, um, skip the dishes. Now, Skip the Dishes is a, a Canadian food delivery service, but it's a subsidiary of Just Eat, which is, you know, a massive British-based food delivery um, delivery company. A, a plaintiff from that company is now also uh, bringing a class action, alleging that, you know, she, as a, as a food delivery server, was an employee and not an independent contractor. So, again, we're starting to see more ripple effects of that, company which could have you know further consequences to the gig economy but i also wanted to mm -hmm. talk about before you before you jump in cam um california because we talked about that this isn't unique to to canada in in california they're dealing with with a similar issue right now and they're pushing to classify reclassify uber and lyft drivers as employees rather than independent contractors and the basis for that is california is arguing that their current status contravenes this, this Bill 5 or AB 5 as it's commonly referred to. And AB 5 was a state law that it, it took effect at the beginning of the year and basically was put in place to, to try and ensure that gig economy workers are classified and protected as employees rather than independent contractors. Um, as you can probably imagine, uh, Uber and Lyft and DoorDash, actually, who's the third big company that's that's been uh, a vocal opponent of this, they're not just taking this sitting down. And on Thursday, they said that Uber said that it was going to allow its drivers to set its own rates. You know, and this is significant, Cam, because, of course, one of the distinctions between employees and independent contractors is, you know, independent contractors are entitled to set their own rates. Mm -hmm. So Uber is effectively trying to get out in front of this and say, well, hey, wait a minute. No, 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 no. They're not employees. I mean, we let them we let them set their own rates. Unfortunately, for the for the drivers themselves, the the evidence seems to suggest that this has made things markedly worse, that their wages have drop significantly because now drivers are are effectively competing against each other um you know in kind of a, a race to the bottom rate wise wow uh there's a lot to unpack there um yeah it would be a race to the bottom i was thinking about rates the other day i mean i do take uber here occasionally uh in hong kong and obviously there's a wide range of kinds of vehicles that can come and pick you up and uber does have different tiers but yeah, being able to set your own rate, I mean, it, it could apply to people on the higher end too, who have, you know, large SUVs and things like that, um, which are, they could charge more for. But I guess, and, and this is really hard to kind of articulate, but I do worry about the opposite of happening of what was intended. So you mentioned that um, they're trying to make sure that gig workers are protected. And, and I worry that it's the opposite will be the result because... If, if the regulations are introduced to such a degree that makes makes it much harder, I wonder if there will be as many 
gig worker kinds of jobs around. And yes, Uber may need to then hire some drivers, but I think a lot of other people could potentially miss out uh, as a result of that change. Similar to the setting their own rates, that actually that kind of backfired and and it hasn't worked out well uh, for the workers themselves. So, I mean, these issues, I, I understand what you're what you're saying and, and what the argument is for, for the workers. I, I do get that and I do have some sympathy for that. Uh, but there's always, there's always pros and cons and, um, yeah, sometimes, sometimes when you take action, you end up worse off. Well, yeah, I mean, it'll be it'll be curious to see how this plays out because it's going to come to a head in November. Uh, Uber, Lyft, and DoorDash—they placed thirty million dollars into campaign accounts. Cam, to they're going to fund a ballot initiative um, campaign in an attempt to to circumvent AB five. So this is being this is known as Proposition Twenty Two. And we can uh, we can post a link to to Prop 22 on the show show notes if anybody's curious to sort of look at it. And Proposition 22 would basically define app based transportation and delivery drivers as independent contractors. So in, in other words, you know, these companies are effectively trying to create a gig worker carve out to this uh, the, this AB5 that was was introduced in in California. And Californians will vote on this in November. I, I do think that the companies that are involved in this, I mean, I can see why they're putting so much money into this campaign. Because if workers are treated as employees of your company, this could upend their entire business model. This isn't a small change. I mean, this could have catastrophic uh, effects on, on their business. And so... I hope that's being considered. I mean, obviously, that's not the employee's problem. I mean, they're they're looking out for themselves as they should. Um, but I, I think you know the way the gig economy has grown. This is kind of a kind of a mortal threat to it, uh, at least parts of it. Well, yeah, and it, it it raises sort of, and and I'm sure you'll find this interesting. It does raise an interesting question in terms of how we engage um, with all of these apps that we use and our relationship with these apps. You know, I mean, in this case, Uber and Lyft, they're their chief argument is that their drivers are not workers of the companies, but rather users of their respective apps, mm -hmm. which is a really kind of fascinating argument. Now, do I, I, I ultimately don't believe that that will, that that will hold up, but it, it is sort of, sort of an interesting question in terms of how do we define our relationships with all of these applications that we use and rely on uh, on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, this has come up before. I mean, is Uber a tech company? Like, would you call it a tech startup? I mean, it's not really a startup anymore. But I mean, I think that question matters because in a way they're not. I mean, this is the oldest kind of transportation. It's dr drivers physically picking you up and driving you somewhere and dropping you off. I mean, there's nothing innovative about that part of the business. Yeah, I mean, I I, I, I guess that's true. Um, but, you know, I think ultimately in, in this case, Uber and Lyft, I mean, they still maintain a fair amount of control over these drivers in terms of, you know, their dependence on the app, where they're picking up passengers, when they pick up passengers, um, the rates, at least in most jurisdictions, until they were allowed to sort of set their own Um yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I think it's I think it's an interesting question, but it will most certainly have ripple effects in the gig economy with other industries. So I'm, I'm not surprised in the least that Uber, Lyft and DoorDash are throwing a whack load of money at this, particularly in a in a state um, as big and populous as as California. Right. I mean, if they lose on this, what happens next? I mean, are other states going to sort of. Uh, follow suit uh, it could have implications in other jurisdictions around the world that will look to the model in california and see if they can sort of redefine the relationship for uber drivers or lyft drivers or what you know what have you in whatever particular country you're looking at yeah we saw this with the auto emission standards i mean if california brings in sort of strict um strict emission standards then there's so many people there it's such a large market that it does dictate for the rest of the country, basically, because, um, you know, car makers have to adhere to what's, what's happening in California. Um, so, exactly. so, yeah, yeah, that part is interesting. I had a, you know, it's kind of cool because I, I actually did take an Uber 
yesterday. And um, usually if I take an Uber, I'm quite quiet uh, in the backseat. Usually I'm listening to a podcast or something. Um, but this this guy guy happened to be quite chatty. And it turned out that he was, sounds like he's quite a wealthy guy. He's got his family in Vancouver. And I asked him about driving for Uber. And he said he, he, he really likes it. He said, I'm an old man. He kept saying, I'm an old man. I can't, I can't do other things now. Um, and he said, you know, because his wife's in Canada, he's a bit lonely. And so he drives Uber. <laughs> and I, I don't think he even needs the money, but I think he enjoys talking to people and um, sort of picking whenever he does want to do it, which, which is really cool. Like, I, I see the benefit of that. But then at the same time, um, it, I, I think the current model obviously doesn't work for workers. Um, so I'm wondering if we're trying to squeeze this into two holes, for lack of a better term, that aren't that relevant now, because it's, it's very difficult to call them an employee, but they do work so often uh, and so regularly that it's hard to call them sort of a, an independent contractor. Is there, can we create a third kind of category where there are some levels of rights or some, some levels of protection? Um, because this is, this does pertain to a lot of people and it's only going to grow as sort of the app economy and the gig economy and, you know, things evolve. Maybe we need to think about some other way to classify this and, and regulate it if this isn't working. And yeah, I don't think it is working really for either side that well. Well, yeah, I, I, I won't get into the ins and outs of dependent contractors, which is sort of a, a, a third a third way that it that exists. Um, but, you, you know, you're right. And I think that a lot of these companies and you see this a lot in tech, right, where you have a disruptor that comes in and completely redefines a particular marketplace they are going to be subject to opposition along the way and they are going to have to sort of ebb and flow and adapt and you know i love it love it or hate it i think we can see that that uber has has done that in most jurisdictions i mean they face backlash effectively everywhere that they've gone and have have shown and proven to be adaptive at least at some level to whatever the particular legislative framework is in the in the jurisdiction that they're in, I suspect they will continue to do so. Um, but you know, these are these are the issues you have to deal with when you're sort of first to the marketplace and in a particular model, right? Yeah, absolutely. Show your support to the PR and Law Podcast by making a one-time donation or setting up a subscription with us on Patreon. Every little bit helps us keep the lights on and bring the show to you each week. If you'd like to chip in, please visit PRNLawPodcast.com. That's PRNLawPodcast.com. Click support the show. Thanks for helping us out. All right, you and are you familiar with this song at all? I, no, I don't think that I am. I I, I, I am. guess that you would not be, but I can tell you uh, uh, that tells me you've never used TikTok. This is just one of the songs that shot to fame uh, uh, through TikTok, and I mean another one is um, "Old Town Road." Um, by Lil Nas X and, and Billy Ray Cyrus. TikTok is huge, and it's now sort of punching uh, at the weight class of Facebook and uh, Google and companies like that. But they are a Chinese company, which has created uh, some problems for them. And actually, we're going to get a quick update here from Bloomberg, uh, which can tell us a little bit uh, about what's going on. Wells Fargo is now asking its employees to remove the TikTok app from their work phones because of security concerns. The bank says it's ordering the move due to concerns about TikTok's privacy and security controls and practices. TikTok is owned by the Chinese company ByteDance, and the White House has expressed concern about privacy and security issues related to it. Yesterday, Amazon sent out an email telling its employees to delete the app, but then said later that message had been in error. TikTok has repeatedly denied allegations it poses a threat to U.S. national security. All right, Ewan, do you know anybody who uses TikTok a lot or have you have you opened the app? Has it come up at all uh, in your circles? Well, you know, Cam, I haven't really left my house all that frequently <laughs> over the last uh, the last few months, except to kind of drop into my my office every now and then to, to do some work. So no, not not really. Um, I mean, I've, I've sort of interacted with it through Twitter, but not through through the the app itself. 
Okay. Well, I, I want to get into TikTok today because I think it's a, a fascinating company. And I think its communications have also been uh, very different uh, to some other companies. And so I want to get into that. But I do, I do want to talk a little bit about the app's history because there's the potential that um, people listening to the podcast might not be as familiar. If you're not uh, 18 years old, uh, you probably don't know uh, the app very well. Uh, I do want to say also, though, before I start, that some of this content uh, is quite closely related to my day job uh, at Tencent. So uh, everything I'm going to say in here, this is my own disclaimer, is my own opinion, for sure. This does not represent uh, the company I work for, because uh, in some situations, the company uh, Tencent and ByteDance are kind of in, in the same boat. Um, ByteDance Yuan is a, is a Chinese company, as you know, and it actually launched uh, the app called Douyin, uh, in 2016. So Douyin was a yeah, lip-syncing app, app basically, uh, like TikTok today. But it's, it's a Chinese app. It still exists in China as an entirely separate app uh, to this day. And it wasn't until 2017 uh, that ByteDance launched uh, an international version. Um, and that didn't catch on either until ByteDance purchased Musical.ly. I'm not sure if you were familiar with that, but it was a musical, also kind of a lip-syncing app, uh, that was, uh, wasn't that popular, but it also wasn't nothing. Uh, and ByteDance bought that in August 2018 and turned it into TikTok. And that's when things really got going for them. Now, uh, it has become a huge business. Uh, ByteDance has also created some other, other apps along the way that are also doing fairly well. So it's, it's a big dog now. It's a legitimate, large, you know, technology unicorn. Uh, the app has been downloaded 2 billion times. So we're talking Facebook levels here. Um, it has launched the music careers of the song I played earlier, uh, and it recorded 5.6 billion US dollars in revenue in the first quarter of 2020. So this is, wow. a, this is a mega business, and analysts believe it's probably worth 150 to 180 billion dollars. Uh, there continues to be talk of, of it listing uh, in Hong Kong or in New York. Um, so I mentioned some of the other apps that it has. Uh, Toutiao, which is a news aggregation app. It's just huge in China. Uh, Xigua, a video app. They've got social networks in India and in Indonesia that are both popular. Um, it also has Top Buzz in the United States, which is a news app, which actually it's not bad. I've used it. I've kept it on my phone and I check it from time to time. So I think the magic with, with ByteDance really is their algorithms. They have figured out how to present to you exactly what you like. And even if you scroll through TikTok, it's, it's, it's pretty incredible uh, about how that works. Of course, nobody knows the secret sauce, but uh, obviously it's a, it's a big competitive uh, advantage for them. So this all sounds great. Big tech unicorn doing well, popular, tons of media attention. Everybody loves it. Great. Not quite great because it's a Chinese company. And we have talked on this show many times about the geopolitical situation right now with Donald Trump, with China, with the trade war, not to mention social media coming under the gun, data privacy, data security, et cetera, et cetera, are big deals. So uh, there has been a lot of talk in the United States about TikTok and potentially uh, banning it or restricting use. I know uh, the U.S. government uh, asked their staff to delete TikTok from their phones. So did NASA. Um, Amazon sent out a letter on Friday uh, asking their staff to, to, to uninstall it. But again, that was a few hours later, they came back and said that was an error, that that email went out to their staff. But we can see that, that this is starting to happen. And the biggest uh, incident of this nature was on June 27th, so towards the end of last month, when India banned 59 Chinese apps all at once. So you and you'll recall India and China had a border skirmish. So uh, tensions are high between those two countries. But this was the first time a, a, a country just sort of carte blanche, just blocked uh, a whole slew of apps from different app makers uh, on different topics. You know, some are games and some are social and you know, one is TikTok. So it's, it's a big deal. And there's a, and some of them are Tencent apps as well. So, you know, WeChat, uh, QQ, uh, apps like that uh, got tied up into it. So I've been very busy dealing with this issue because the apps are no longer uh, available in India. Follow so far, Doc. Yeah, I think I've got it. I think okay. that makes sense. I mean, but also I mean, in terms of India, it's almost misleading to say a country. Um, I mean, because the market mm -hmm 
India is just such a massive market and it's such a densely populated country that I suspect that's got to be a huge hit for all these Chinese apps to take and losing that marketplace. It is. In fact, by number of users, it's TikTok's biggest market. Uh, it's been a huge hit there. And there were some analysts saying that the company probably lost $6 billion in value just because of the block in India. Uh, so, so it is a big deal. Wow. But the PR side of this, Ewan, is uh, quite fascinating. So uh, not long after the ban happened, uh, you know, there's a number of Chinese companies that are kind of laying low to see, um, you know, what happens. It's obviously a political issue. It's not really an app issue uh, per se. Uh, but TikTok put out this statement. I will link to it, but I'm just going to go through it now for you so you get an idea uh, of what they said. So here's the quote. The government of India has issued an interim order for the blocking of 59 apps, including TikTok, and we're in the process of complying with it. We've been invited to meet with concerned government stakeholders for an opportunity to respond and submit clarifications. TikTok continues to comply with all data privacy and security requirements under Indian law and have not shared any information of our users in India with any foreign government, including the Chinese government. Further, if we are requested to in the future, we would not do so. We place the highest importance on user privacy and integrity. This is very different uh, to most Chinese companies. Now, second to that, uh, a couple of weeks ago, they hired Kevin Mayer, who was uh, at Disney. He was a senior executive there. He was, uh, many felt he would become the CEO of Disney, but he was passed over. So he resigned and TikTok has hired him as their CEO. So now they have a, they have a large office that they opened uh, in Mountain View, California. They have a U.S. CEO. They've got a lot of uh, U.S. staff. There's talk of them hiring 150 uh, engineers to work on TikTok. But that's still obviously not enough. There's going to be a fear that the Chinese government is, uh, is accessing data or uh, the data is being shared with, with the Chinese government. So TikTok has gone uh, very, very far to try and distance itself from the Chinese government, which is a, a brand new thing for, for any Chinese company to do. And one of the biggest stories that came out was that TikTok was considering blocking access to any US user data or servers from the Chinese employees of the company. Which wow. is quite remarkable, in fact. Yeah. And also talk now of just splitting off the company or moving its headquarters from Beijing to California because they seem very, very determined not to allow its Chinese heritage to negatively impact the business. And this really is quite remarkable. Uh, the, the, the CEO, Kevin Mayer, I mentioned him, uh, he did say also, this is his quote, I can confirm that the Chinese government has never made a request to us for the TikTok data of Indian users. If we do ever receive such a request in the future, we would not comply. And there is talk now of the U.S. government potentially banning TikTok as well. Uh, Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, mentioned it last week. Donald Trump mentioned yeah, it last week. Uh, so this this is a, a threat to the company's survival to some degree. I mean, it, it is popular in China and India and a lot of other places. Uh, but it is, it, is, it is a big threat to the business. And so, I mean, I wanted to bring this up just in terms of PR and the way that they're managing this because I recognize that they're in a difficult situation. I mean, I often am as well in, in, in my job in trying to balance these things. Uh, but I, I have never seen in, in my career a company uh, sort of speak this way about the Chinese government. Uh, it's, it's quite remarkable. But it'll be interesting to see how well they do, how well it goes for them uh, in the United States, and if they are able to ultimately get out from under this, this issue of Chinese heritage, because it's, it's extremely difficult. And I, I, for one, for me, I'm not sure that they can ever get over it. Because as long as it's, 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 it's a Chinese company, there's going to be the concerns, no matter what the CEO says, or no matter what the founder says. I think it's just too difficult to overcome. Well, yeah, I mean, if, if the Chinese government ultimately requests that data, I mean, what are they going to do? Saying, well, we, we wouldn't grant that request. I mean, first of all, would the public at large ever know that that request was made? <laughs> I mean, it's not like they'd ever, it's not like it would be something you'd read about in a newspaper. Um, but also, I mean, Cam, do you think that this could this could resolve? I mean, we've talked before about the ongoing trade war between China and the United States. Do you think that this could result in in sort of a new, you know, I'm hesitant to say a new Cold War, but it, but at least, you know, using that term in so much as that 
the American government effectively starts to block access to all Chinese apps coming into the country. Just carte blanche on the on on you know this however flimsy it may be idea that well we can't trust these companies they could be stealing data and there there could be privacy concerns there could be military concerns so you know we're just going to carte blanche block any of these chinese apps it's such a a big question to tackle because there's so many influences on this process uh in terms of politics uh, and politicians specifically also um I, I, I do see that day coming, though. I think the relations are deteriorating to a point where it's becoming uh, quite worrying. Uh, I think, uh, you know, China's government has taken steps recently. I think Hong Kong is one of them in terms of the draconian nature of the law they introduced here. Um, that, the, that the world is kind of on notice about the way China intends to conduct itself uh, internationally. And you're right about people not knowing if a government uh, um, or if the Chinese government asks for user data, but oftentimes people do find out that it happened. It, I mean, some other social networking apps in mainland China, you know, people have said something and, you know, a few hours later, someone shows up at their door, a police officer shows up to ask some questions. So yeah, you don't know for sure that that's what's happening, but you can, you can, you can infer that it's happening depending on, on, on who it is. But I think the, the, the issue of data security is... It's important and it's growing uh, in importance in terms of or, or awareness of it. But I, I think it's going to be such a key issue over the next five to 10 years. Where is data stored? How is it stored? Is it encrypted? To what degree? Who has the, the decryption key? Um, you know, where are the servers located? All of this sort of stuff is becoming really paramount. And, you know, TikTok pulled out of Hong Kong, for instance, just uh, a couple of days ago over the national security law, as did, uh, or, or some of the other U.S. technology companies have suspended uh, any, any um, the process of giving user data to the Hong Kong government if asked. Um, so there's concern. And yeah, I, I, TikTok leaving here, I mean, it had about 200,000 users in Hong Kong, which is it's not huge, but it's also not small. And the, the app is very popular. Like there are people here that are quite quite upset about that. But to your point, uh, it does feel a little bit like the, the battle lines are being drawn, that these are the kinds of uh, apps that we just do not trust. And with the sophistication of technology now, um, even if someone's assuring you that this is the process, you can never really be 100% sure. Yeah, well, and I think that, you know, as we've seen with with the, the blowback against Huawei, sure, you're going to have countries like the United States or Canada, for example, who are who are going to be resistant to allowing this technology in on, on, on the basis of privacy and, and, and data concerns. But I mean, ultimately, as I think we know, there's always going to be those more developing nations that are going to embrace this tech because it's cheap, right? Uh, I mean, at a certain point, the Chinese government, it just behooves them to offer it up at next to no cost to get into these marketplaces. And there'll be a lot of countries that won't really be able to take a you know, sort of moral principled stance on these issues because they simply can't afford to do so, right? Yeah, and it's actually been kind of interesting in India because a lot of their local apps are starting to take off. Like there were a lot more downloads of, uh, you know, there is a kind of a, an Indian version of TikTok. Um, and I think it's actually sort of helping helping the Indian developers uh, to a big degree. And, and I have read articles as well saying like, you know, what happened to China is what China has been doing to, you know, Western countries for a very long time. I mean, all of the US social media apps are basically blocked in China along with a lot of media apps. And this is the first First time China's I had to face a company doing that to itself, um, which which is a big change. And I think it's yeah, it's 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 going to happen more. I think um, I mean not to be alarmist, but there was an, another article last week. I was going to bring this up in the recommendations about the U.S. going into Taiwan uh, and um, that happening quite soon, and it being repeated over and over uh, among the Chinese leadership. And so you, you you look at the way and the direction the world is headed. Uh, in terms of these conflicts, and I think information is is too important now. It's something we have to think about. I feel like in the early days of tech and the internet, it was just it was fun. It was a free for all. Everybody was signing up for everything and sharing information and photos and all of that. And that that's kind of that innocent time is gone. 
I mean, people are starting to learn, like, what is this data? How are they using it? You know, why, why is it so valuable? Uh, and it's making people think twice about it. And it's something, I mean, I, I recommend all of our listeners pay attention to data and passwords and the services that you use and investigate this stuff. Because, um, you know, if, if, if you end up with the wrong service, uh, there could be there could be big problems. Uh, and sometimes just embarrassing ones like the Ashley Madison case from a few years ago when uh, a, the list of adulterers uh, on that service was, was leaked. So in terms of PR, though, um, I think there's two things here that will be very interesting to watch. One is the Chinese government's actions or reactions based on 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 ByteDance's decision in terms of how they're going to manage the company, whether they're going to, you know, continue basically saying they will defy the Chinese government uh, if it makes a request, which, again, and that's something a lot of Internet companies in China would would just not say. Uh, it's, it's, it's an aggressive thing to say when you're in the country that is run by that government and they've got a lot of, they, they've got a lot of control over these companies um, as a result of that. And then the second is in the U.S. Um, you know, will this strategy, it's, it's a business strategy, but also in terms of PR, will it be enough? To, to make people feel less worried about it. And, you know, you can make a very strong argument that people are not worried about it. If there's, you know, 100 million people in the U.S. using TikTok, it's not that high, but it's quite high. Uh, obviously, they don't have concerns, or if they do, they're, n- they're not big enough to, to, to uninstall the app. Um, so, yeah, this is going to be something worth watching uh, in the future. You know, it, and, I, and I know this is also a uh, a heavy question to throw at you. And I often throw these heavy questions at you, Cam, but um, you know, what do you think these, these tech companies can be doing or should be doing from a PR perspective out of the gate to sort of assure their, their, the market and assure their prospective users that they are taking data privacy seriously, that these concerns are real um, and that they're conscious of them. I think companies are doing that or they're trying to do that. And um, I, I do think companies should be very transparent about how they manage data. I mean, I talked about, I mean, just even for our, our, our listeners, I mean, if you come across a cloud storage provider, for instance, you look for what's called zero knowledge. So if something is encrypted, like if like WhatsApp, for instance, um, you send a message, it's encrypted. It's very difficult to to um, get get um, the 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 text of that message or see what it actually was because it's scrambled to such to such a high degree. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, WhatsApp could decrypt it itself. Like they're they're able to do so uh, in sort of an extreme case, where zero knowledge means only you can decrypt it. Only you, by signing in with you know a couple of passwords, can decrypt that. So that's the highest level of security. And there are more cloud providers coming online. I use one, in fact, um, that, that that do this. And so it's um, it's something that I would look for as an individual at a company level. I mean, one thing ByteDance has done is open what they call a transparency center in California. And it's not a store, but it's a place where you know people can go to see them working to 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 you know, get a presentation about how they manage user data, where it goes, where it's stored, how it's accessed, uh, you know, that kind of thing. And I think companies will need to do more of that. The biggest challenge, I think, is just the complexity of this. Because if you start talking about servers and encryption and 256-bit encryption and 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 CDNs and things like that, uh, people get lost quickly. And if they don't understand it, they're going to be skeptical for the most part. And I mean, I see this a lot just in my, my regular work. If you understand sort of how this works, um, you would have some level of comfort. But if people don't understand it, they don't they just don't trust it. And I mean, we're seeing in general, Ewan, I mean, there's a lot less trust of companies and governments uh, at this point in time. Uh, that's also just sort of a, a big factor that, that a lot of companies are dealing with, tech or not tech. All right, Doug. Uh, recommendations. What have you got going? Anything Anything interesting last week? Um, I... I read an interesting article. I didn't know much about this. Again, you know, in Canada, we have sort of um, limited investment tool options, unlike the the United States where, you know, obviously it's just a wide open marketplace and there's all kinds of interesting and sharp, sophisticated apps um, that people can use as investment tools. But I read an interesting article that we can, we can link to in the New York Times earlier this week about Robin Hood. Um, I don't know if you saw this, Cam, and Robin Hood luring sort of young traders sometimes with devastating results 
talking about the ins and outs of the app and, uh, you know, a lot of information that isn't transparently disclosed to its users, um, outages that have cost users a lot of money and investments when they weren't able to sort of purchase or sell aspects of their portfolio, giving, you know, the ability to novice investors to trade things like options, which obviously are, are, are fairly complicated and nuanced and, and require a level of sophistication to sort of engage with. Uh, anyway, really, really interesting article. Um, and, you know, sort of a, a world that I'm not particularly familiar with, which is, you know, from the tech perspective of developing these these investment tools. And, and apparently it's quite quite a huge market in the United States. Well, Robinhood's been around for a while and it's insanely popular. I mean, people people do love it um, just because it, 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 it it's simple to use um, and it's designed in such a modern way. I mean, if you look at a lot of the, the stock broking apps, um, they are quite traditional with sort of the black screen and the small sort of numbers uh, going up. But Robinhood is very well, it's very well done. And, and it's interesting you bring this up because actually uh, just last month, uh, a U.S. trader took his own life actually as a result of uh, a, a, a big loss on Robinhood. Um, but the, he was trading options, which goes to exactly what you were talking about, but not sure really how they worked. And he thought he had sustained a huge loss but in fact, he didn't. So he ended up taking his own life. But actually, the loss wasn't nearly as bad as he thought it was. And so, yeah, I mean, I think we've known for a very long time that, you know, if you're going to invest, you should know what you're doing because it, you know, it could go sideways very quickly on you. And these new apps that are coming out, um, I mean, Robinhood's been around a while, but there's new apps coming out all the time. There's a lot of banking services and financial services that are going digital where this is an issue. In China, in fact, you can you can buy mutual funds and ETFs and all kinds of insurance products through apps, you know, by, by Tencent and Alibaba. Uh, so this is how people are, are doing their, their financial investing. Uh, yeah, but it's, it's definitely a, um, a risk. Well, yeah. And they were talking about, the article talks a bit about some of these, these sort of, and you hear this around games like Candy Crush, these that are sort of structured mm -hmm. to tap into that reward center in the brain to keep you using the app and engaged with, um, with, with the game itself, you know, things like apparently when you create your first Robin or, or when you open your initial account, there's sort of like a, a scratching of a, of a ticket and that generates sort of, um, some, mm. some, some money towards an official or, or an initial purchase, um, and, and things that sort of pop up throughout the app that, that are sort of, there to try and engage that that reward center of the brain and you know which of course raises some interesting questions you know should we are these the sorts of things that we should be incorporating into an investment tool i i mean i i haven't i can't speak to it because i haven't used it myself but um you know it, it, I don't know that people should be engaging with their investment tools the way they engage with Candy Crush, for example. That strikes me as as uh, as somewhat problematic. Yeah, but we're in an era now where everyone thinks they're uh, an expert on everything, uh, and they don't want to listen to somebody else telling them how they should do it. Um, and yeah, I, I think that, that that's going to be a problem. I mean, this is a big, big question. I mean, it's a big subject. We're not going to be able to go through it all, but I think it is, it is legit to pay attention to, especially as things are moving uh, in this direction. I mean, I, I have actually, Ewan, stopped carrying my wallet day to day uh, because, you know, through the iPhone, there's an Apple wallet. I've got five or six credit cards in there, plus two octopus cards. And you just tap your phone everywhere. <laughs> you don't even have to unlock it. And even if your battery's dead, you can still use the octopus part of it. And I realized, like, I really, I don't really need to carry my wallet with me <laughs> if everything's going to be on the phone. Now, I don't know if I'm going to keep doing that. It's been kind of nice, but it's, it's remarkably easy. Uh, so, if, if, yeah, if finance is going in this direction just in general. Uh, but there are downsides to it, no question. Um, I wanted to mention just two two quick things uh, that I thought were were quite interesting. One, I think I sent this over to you, and I can't remember. Uh, an article by Edward Luce in the Financial Times called "The Humbling of the Anglo-American World," and I think it really sums up the feeling abroad, at least in Asia. Uh, the UK and the US have had such difficult problems with COVID, and the damage to their brands, uh, quote unquote, 
um, of those two countries is 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 catastrophic. Uh, I think there's a lot of people down on the U.S. Not in a triumphant way. I think there's people in mainland China who feel triumphant, uh, but just in kind of a pitying, kind of sad, unfortunate way, which is sort of how I look at it. You look back to sort of the the greatest generation or or the sacrifices our ancestors made. I mean, we're in Canada, we're Canadians, but I mean, in the U.S., you know, the things that they had to do, and yet this generation can't be bothered to put on a mask or just stay home and watch television. Like, that's too much for them to to give up. So it's... uh, it's dire. It's quite dire, I think. The second one uh, is called Slate Star Codex and Silicon Valley's War Against the Media. This is a fascinating article, and it gets into rationalism, which is also fascinating. Media, Silicon Valley, all kinds of stuff that is excellent. And I cannot recommend this highly enough. It was an article in The New Yorker. Once I started, I could not stop reading it. And it's quite long, but uh, it's well worth the time investment. Okay, that sounds interesting. I'll have to, I'll have to check that out. Right on. Anything else you want to uh, want to add before we uh, wrap this thing up, Doc? No, I, th- I think that's it. We just like every week, we we crammed a lot of stuff into our our just barely hour plus. Right? I know. I feel like we're just racing through sections now, but I think it's good. It's good to get more and more different kinds of uh, content on here, so that's good. Um, but also uh, for the listeners, if you've got any ideas for us, things you'd like us to talk about or take a look at, or an article that you came across that deals with employment law or PR or anything really. Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, tag us on, on social media at PR Law Pod, P R L A W P O D. Lastly, if you uh, enjoyed the show, please tell a friend. Uh, that helps us uh, get our name out there a little bit more. We appreciate it. Uh, and of course, social media. Uh, you can find us on social media at PR Law Podcast. And you can subscribe to, subscribe to our show on YouTube as well. So another week has come and gone. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, For you and Christy, this is Cam McMurchie. We'll see you next week. been the PR and Law Podcast with Cam McMurchie and Ewan Christie. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend or leave a review. You can also join us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by following our account at PR Law Podcast. That's all one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Thanks for your support.